They allow us to see back to the beginning of our universe and give us clues on why things are the way they are. X-rays are pervasive throughout the universe. From comets to planets to normal stars to galaxies to clusters of galaxies, all are X-ray sources. On this special Public Radio Hour, we're learning about X-rays and thinking about the 20th anniversary of the Chandra X-ray Observatory and what happens next. In the next hour, we'll talk about dark matter, black holes, and neutron stars, as well as multi-messenger astronomy and the importance of the 2020 Astrophysics Decadal Survey. Don't know much about those things? Don't worry. Doctors Martin Beiskoff and Jessica Gaskin are going to break it all down for us on this special edition of the Public Radio Hour. We'll be right back. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. I'm Brett Tannehill. Coming up this hour, we're taking a special look at the history and discoveries made by the world's best resolution X-ray observatory, the Chandra X-ray Observatory, managed right here in Huntsville at Marshall Space Flight Center. Later this hour, we'll also look ahead to the future of X-ray observation with research astrophysicist Dr. Jessica Gaskin, one of NASA's study scientists on the next generation of X-ray observatories, still in the concept stage, the Lynx Observatory. But let's start at the beginning. Back when humans first began to unlock the secrets of X-rays, Dr. Martin Weisskopf, the chief scientist for X-ray astronomy at Marshall Space Flight Center, who's been involved with the Chandra Observatory since the very beginning, knows all about it. He sat down with community newsroom producer and Marshall Space Flight Center historian Brian Odom and myself. Weisskopf says initially he didn't even want to be a scientist. He wanted to be a lawyer. But that dream took a serious hit his freshman year of college when he made a B-minus in his government class. So he began considering other options and quickly discovered two things. One, he was related to Victor Weisskopf, a famous scientist who, among other things, was the first director of the CERN Particle Accelerator in Europe. And two, he was pretty good at math and had an aptitude for physics. And he says he also saw how much fun people were having working in the field of quantum physics. Imagine that. In 1962, Ricardo Giacconi, flew a rocket experiment that discovered the first known source of X-rays other than our sun. And thanks to Giacconi's first experiment, the field of X-ray observation began to change the way mankind understands our universe. Dr. Weisskopf picks up Giacconi's story from there. He also discovered uh, in that same rocket flight, in addition to that source that he saw, that appeared to be a glow of X-rays everywhere that the detectors looked. And so that became known as the diffuse X-ray background at the time. And the question was, was that just made up of lots of sources that you couldn't resolve, that is, separate with the crude detectors that they had? Or what were they? So what the heck was going on? That's the usual question. And... uh, Oh, that must have been a very exciting question to uh, arise, to see something yes. new like that, and you're like, oh, my gosh, what, oh, yes. what is this? Yes, yes, it was a profound discovery, and uh, several things came from that. First of all, Ricardo uh, sketched a program for X-ray astronomy. You know, what should we do to answer these questions? And there's a sketch of what he thought should be an important step which was an orbiting X-ray telescope with detectors that could resolve things. And it was 10 meters long and about one meter in diameter. And amazingly enough, uh, let's see, 62 to 99, what is that? You do the math, 37 years later, an observatory named Chandra was launched that was 10 meters long, 1.2 meters in diameter, the world's best X-ray telescope. For a lot of people who don't really understand, tell us what are X-rays and why is it that we have to, you know, when you talk about sounding rockets and even balloons and and now observatories, what tell us a little bit about that? Yes, very good and important question. Uh, Well, first of all, what are X-rays? X-rays are nothing more than light at higher energies, and you know this very well. Well, you know this from your visits to the dentist office when they want to take a X-ray picture of your teeth. They slip the film in, they put the x-ray source near it, 
They put a lead on you, and the technician gets out of the room, which tells you that x-rays must be pretty high energy, and you don't want to mess with them. And then they expose the film, and you see a picture of your bones of your teeth. So x-rays are nothing more than light at very high energies. Uh, and when we talk about high energies, we talk about energies in the kilo-electron volts range or wavelengths in the angstrom range or temperatures in the millions of degrees. All of those are equivalent ways of describing what uh, the energy of an x-ray. The other thing about x-rays is, sadly for us as X would-be x-ray astronomers, but very good for us as humans is that x-rays will not penetrate through the atmosphere down to the surface of the Earth. So in order to do any search of x-rays from objects outside of uh, the Earth, you've got to do it with get above the atmosphere. So that's why it started with sounding rockets and then over the years moved to satellites. Where do these things come from? Where do x-rays come from the, in, in the universe? Every known class of astronomical object, from comets to planets to normal stars to galaxies to clusters of galaxies are a subset thereof, all our X-ray sources. Turns out that's why X-ray astronomy is so important and interesting. It's uh, you got to study the X-ray emission from these objects just like uh, doctors have to study the uh, heart and the foot to understand the human, not just one or the other. We talk about 1962 and the first observed source. How much, how rapidly was that program or was that, was that field advancing over the 60s and into the 70s? Yes, uh, the 60s saw about a dozen sounding rocket experiments that discovered a couple of handful of sources. Then in the early 70s, uh, Ricardo Giacconi again was principal investigator of a satellite experiment that had detectors with a little bit better ability to see how sources are separated from each other. It was called the Uhuru satellite, the Swahili word for freedom. Uh, in honor of the fact that it was launched off the west coast of Kenya. And that satellite discovered about 350 roughly sources and could see where they are in the sky to a certain degree of precision. And most of them were in the plane of our galaxy, telling us that they were sources in the galaxy. And about a small percentage of them were out of the plane of the galaxy, telling us that they were extra-galactic sources. And the amount of energy required jumps in each case. If the, star, the source is in the galaxy, and that early first detection had to be a million times more intense than the sun for it to have been seen by the little proportion, the uh, Geiger counter. And so these sources were very bright, uh, and then the extragalactic ones were even brighter, even more energy, so a lot of interesting things. And they discovered through timing of these beasts that a lot of the galactic sources were binary systems, that is, an X-ray source and a normal star rotating around each other, and the energy mechanism was matter transferring from the normal star to the X-ray emitting star through gravity and just the gravitational release of energy. And that meant that the star that was X-ray emitting was very tiny. And as we learned more about them, they turned out to be what we call neutron stars about the size of Huntsville but weigh as much as the sun. So the density of the material at the surface is like a billion people per raindrop. And so you can imagine that, you know, if, if I drop this coffee cup on the table here, it releases a little bit of heat is released. But if I drop this coffee cup on something that has humongous gravity, like a surface of a neutron star, that the amount of energy released is humongous and it permits x-rays to be emitted. And then the question became, what were these extragalactic sources? How was that working? 
And uh, we've soon learned over the years the next step were several satellites like the Einstein Observatory that started to do, looking at everything and could do very fine pictures so that we could not only see where is the X-ray source in the sky, but was there an optical source or a radio source of interest at the same location. And we started learning that uh, the extragalactic sources were active galaxies, quasars, and we were talking about supermassive black holes that are at the center of active galaxies, and the mission mechanism is matter flowing into the, towards the black hole, and before it goes beyond the event horizon, and you can't see it, uh, enough energy is released and x-rays are produced. It's really neat. The progression of uh, the discoveries just must have been so exciting at the time. I mean, like you said, it started with realizing uh, this is the sun, and then you can see all these, you just call them sort of sources, and I imagine they didn't know exactly what it was at first. They just knew there were things, and then you discover uh, as your ability improves to observe things, more specifically what they are, and that trend seems to just be exponentially zooming along today. Yes, and uh, the next step in that trend is, uh, especially with with the Chandra X-ray Observatory that we launched in 99 and celebrating its 20th anniversary. That was another Marshall project. Now we're concentrating not only where are the objects, but how do they work? the astrophysics of the objects, as it were, and what are the mechanisms that drive them? How, do you, how are you producing the x-rays under these conditions? And that's a lot of fun. Uh, some of these systems are very fascinating and have potential applicability to us on Earth. There are famous systems like the, where we have pulsars and pulsar wind nebulae, that's a rotating neutron star that pulses and then it releases. You can see that it's losing energy because it's spinning down, like a skater spinning down. And the conversion of energy, uh, that spin energy, to radiation, including X-rays, primarily X-rays, is at a very high level of efficiency. If I could build an engine that was that efficient, I would be, well, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you'd still come visit us and tell us I'd about I'd come it. visit you, right. <laughs> I would, I'd be building my own satellites. One of the things, too, you talked about was how Ricardo Giacconi had kind of mapped this whole process out, what he'd like to see. Yeah. And that's something people forget is how long the developments, these progress, these, these programs are, like Chandra. Tell us a little about how that, a little some of the milestones there when that was proposed and kind of some of the key moments along that development. Chandra was officially proposed in 1976 in a proposal by Ricardo and Harvey Tannenbaum, another scientist at Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory in Cambridge, Mass. And uh, that was uh, a project study was assigned to Marshall. And I was hired in 1977 to be the project scientist for that work. And as I said, uh, so we started the project in 1977, and we launched in 1999, 22 years later. So these things don't go fast. Uh, in 1980, uh, based on Einstein Observatory results, that fabulous results that every known class of astronomical object or a subset of it was an X-ray source. You know, great mystery what's going on. Uh, the, the National Academy of Sciences rated the mission, it was called AXAF at the time, terrible acronym, Advanced X-ray Astrophysics Facility as an aside, it was called a facility because of the fact that the Hubble Space Telescope was being built and Congress had approved that and we didn't want to ask for another telescope, so we called it a facility. It was different from a telescope. That, uh, that helped it skate through, huh? Well, it didn't <laughs> hurt, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they... That, that's that National Academy survey, which involves all the entire uh, community, recommended AXAF as the number one large mission priority. Almost 20 years later, 
uh, we launched. And that's actually, well, I won't say unfortunately or fortunately, but historically typical that Large missions like Chandra, uh, which do, can only move forward by a number one rating from the academy, tend to launch 20 years after their number one rating. That was true of Hubble and uh, is true of JWST, et cetera. In the beginning, Chandra was going to be a mission that was going to be serviceable, like Hubble, from uh, you know from the space shuttle. The space shuttle could go to its service, it, but that was changed at one point. Tell us a little yes. bit about wh- why that was and what that the ramifications of that. Yes, uh, the launch of the mission was when I got here in '77. It was going to be in '85, and in '78 it was going to be in '86, and '79 it was going to be in '87, and it kept moving out year per year, and we kept replanning the mission because we couldn't get the funds from Congress to do it. And it was a serviceable mission at that time. Low Earth orbit, serviceable was the planning and several servicing missions so that the overall lifetime was going to be 20 years. And uh, that's got projected out to be very expensive, especially in the 80s when inflation was high. And so you started talking about inflation 20 years after a launch in 85. The numbers were uh, about eight to one, so there was an extra eight or nine billion dollars associated with the mission to do the servicing. So we felt uh, that we were our mission was virtual; it was just never going to get going. We had to do something, and NASA headquarters, uh, Charlie, a fellow named Charlie Pellerin and Len Fisk was the associate administrator at the time, said, we've got to get rid of servicing. Can we come up with a mission without servicing? And that in order to do that, we had to convince people that we couldn't go into low Earth orbit because people thought, well, you know, you say you're not going to have servicing, but if something goes wrong, you're going to ask us to go up with the shuttle and fix it. So we put it, we decided we would put it in this uh, orbit that it's in today, Chandra is in today, uh, where it goes a third of the way to the moon and about twice the diameter of the Earth at the lowest point and uh, can't be serviced by the shuttle. Of course, the shuttle doesn't exist anymore. And that convinced everybody we didn't have servicing that reduced the cost and the mission was approved by Congress. Mm in 1992, and we then built it, and seven years later launched in 1999. It was wonderful. One of the things I think uh, that people might find interesting is the observatory itself, how it is that it's able to to detect x-rays, how that process kind of works. If you could, I know it's kind of hard to do without it visual, but... Right. uh, X-rays, as I said earlier in the interview, uh, in this discussion, is nothing more than light at high energies. And so if you build a mirror that's smooth enough, because x-rays are very high energies, and if you come in onto the mirror and it isn't smooth, you're just going to pe- penetrate into the mirror or bounce off in some crazy direction. So you need a very smooth surface, and you can ask me how smooth is that? Well, if it, How smooth is that? Yes. <laughs> So if an X-ray telescope, if the Chandra X-ray telescope was the state of Colorado, uh, the highest surface is a couple of inches high. (laughs) So few angstroms, few widths of an atomic diameter smooth. And you have to come in at a shallow angle. If you come in too steep, so it's like skipping water off off a stone, (laughs) stone (laughs) off water. If you do it shallow enough, it'll skip. And so these telescopes, uh, crudely speaking, very crudely speaking, look like very expensive wastebaskets where the x-rays come in parallel to the sides. They're actually shaped like a parabola. They're very smooth, and there are two reflections for technical reasons so that anything on axis or off axis comes to a focus. And Chandra telescopes are superb. Uh, they image the x-rays down to a point that's the width of a human hair. That's got to be hard for normal people uh, like myself um, t- 
to understand just the, the specificity of, of that. Yes. Well, again, the way to the way to visualize it is just uh, as you would with any lens system is to focusing light is you want you're taking a sharper and sharper picture. The better the resolution, the better the detectors, uh, you get a nice clear image of this that portion of the sky. So if there are two objects very close to each other in the sky, you can see that they're two objects. If the telescope isn't that good, those two objects start to blur together. And and as we'll hear uh, later in this episode of the Public Radio Hour from Jessica Gaskin, Lynx, the next generation, is going to take it even further. It's going to take it further. Lynx's primary is going to do similar resolution to Chandra, but much more photon collecting areas so that it can do experiments that Chandra simply cannot do. And it especially links will probe into the what we call the spectroscopic domain, the ability to measure energies of the X-rays very precisely and really dig into the atmospheric at, uh, astrophysics and the plasma physics of what's happening in the sources that are being studied, which is crucial to understanding how they work. How do they work? That's what we're always asking. And of course, discovering new things. So Chandra launches in 1999, so we have 20 years of that, of science. Yes. What have been some of the most important discoveries that Chandra has made over that time? There have been so many discoveries that that question actually becomes pleasurably hard to answer. (laughs) Uh, There are some missions that are focused on one particular thing, and if they do it or do something new and different, you can say, wow, we did that. You know, we found a planet with green men on it uh, or ladies. Uh, There have been so many, uh, so I'll have to give you a feeling for that. Uh, First of all, we now know that the what we used to call the diffuse background is made up of active galaxies, quasars, supermassive black holes at the center of galaxies dominate the X-ray emission from galaxies. Another thing that we found is that the in using Chandra, we've been able to learn that dark matter does not interact with itself except gravitationally. So dark, what say? What's dark matter? It's a, we've learned over the years that there are galaxies that cluster together. So you see a region of the sky. You'll see lots of normal galaxies like our Milky Way, etc., clustered together. That's why we call them a cluster of galaxies. Amazingly enough, not to confuse anybody, <laughs> but to actually have a name that makes sense. When we look at that with an X-ray telescopes, we see maybe a very bright X-ray emitting central galaxy, which has a supermassive black hole in it, lots of X-ray emission, and the space between all the galaxies filled with a hot X-ray emitting gas. And that's all held together. You can see it as a shape. It looks like a big egg in the sky. But then when you calculate how much mass you need to hold the galaxies and the X-ray emitting gas together, you don't have enough. So there's got to be something else there. And we call that dark matter. The reason we call it dark matter is there's got to be something else there, but we don't see it. We know it's there because it holds it all together, but we don't see it. Uh, but in various experiments that are done, uh, we've learned that dark matter does not interact with anything except itself gravitationally. So that's a clue. A clue. Well, mostly clue is what dark matter isn't as opposed to what dark matter is. But uh, we're getting there. Uh, other things that we've learned uh, in details uh, more recently, for example, a Two neutron stars collided, and this was discovered in gravitational waves that were emitted. Chandra looked at that location, and at the time, very close to the time of the collision when they saw it, no X-ray source there. But lo and behold, a few weeks later, 
bright X-ray source started to appear. So again, a clue as to what, what happened there, which seems to have formed a black hole system. Uh, those are just a few of the fabulous discoveries. And by the way, well, yes, okay, stop there. No, no, by the way, uh, you were gonna say? Oh, well, my favorite objects, uh, this is probably too technical, but the pictures would be beautiful. These spinning neutron stars, uh, they radiate particles, and the particles go off into the medium around uh, the object, and then they have shocks, and then they release X-rays. And we saw for the first time with Chandra, because of the superb angular resolution, we saw the, uh, this shock front forming I mean, it was theorized to be there, but nobody knew whether it was there, and there it was. That's one of those times where theory and experiment worked out nicely. And the <laughs> theorists were right. I actually, as an experimentalist, mostly prefer when we find something that the theorists didn't predict, but uh, this was very nice to see that. So, Dr. Weisskopf, if you could go anywhere in the universe and see anything Time is not an issue here. You can go and come back in a reasonable amount of time. What would you go see and why? Oh, my. That's a question I have never been asked. So you're really taking me by surprise there. I guess it would be to go, well, if I could survive, do I get to survive you the gravity survive, too? Yes, okay. you can survive anything. Right. I would like to go near the surface of a neutron star and see what that surface looks like. Uh, this object that's the size of Huntsville weighs as much as the sun and spins. <laughs> it's kind of neat. How do you summarize the the legacy of Chandra now, where it sits today? Well, it, it, legacy is keeping going. I mean, just, uh, we're having some uh, aging problems, uh, but the observatory is still taking data of high quality. Uh, scientists are publishing about 500 papers per year. We're as oft-cited as, uh, as uh, any observatory, including Hubble, which is very well known to the public. Uh, and uh, we're, we're, we're not doing just the same stuff over and over again, but new stuff. We get reviewed in something called a senior review every two or three years, and uh, we always have new good stuff to show people. And our funding gets renewed. We're planning to try to operate for another 10 years, if possible. It is the only observatory with this sub-arc second angular resolution uh, you, and for now and for the foreseeable future. And scientists want it and need it and use it. I'm just very uh, proud and privileged to be working, continue to be working on this, what I call, a, what one of my colleagues called a scientific cathedral that took us to build, and uh, to be associated with all the people that made this success. This was a tremendous success. There are many people here in Huntsville who played a very significant role in this, uh, from you know scientists, uh, managers, engineers, programmers, et cetera, and contractors both here and throughout the country uh, and throughout the world that have made this such a great observatory. And I'm proud to be associated with it. And those of you listening, thank you. That was Marshall Space Flight Center's Chief Scientist for X-ray Astronomy, Dr. Martin Weisskopf, talking with me and Marshall Space Flight Center historian Brian Odom. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 WLRH Huntsville. And tonight we're honoring the 20th anniversary of the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which is helping humans see the universe as we've never seen it before. If you'd like to learn more about Chandra and X-ray observation, an amazing panel discussion is being hosted next Thursday, September 5th, at 6.30 at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center's Intuitive Planetarium. The panel features Dr. Weisskopf, Eileen Collins, the first female space shuttle commander, and Harvey Tannenbaum, director of the Chandra Science Center. You can also find that info on the WLRH.org community calendar. Just look on September 5th. Coming up in our second segment, we look into the future of X-ray observation and talk with research astrophysicist Dr. Jessica Gaskin, one of NASA's study scientists on the next generation of X-ray observatories, the LYNX Observatory.
That's coming up on the Public Radio Hour here on listener-supported 89.3 Huntsville. We'll be right back. Next time on City Arts and Lectures, Dr. Jen Gunter, known as Twitter's resident gynecologist. Dr. Gunter is intent on debunking myths surrounding women's health, rampant in this era of wellness gurus and internet misinformation. That's next time on City Arts and Lectures on this public radio station. Thursday nights at 8 on 89.3 HD1 WLRH. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. I'm your host tonight, Brett Tannehill. And in this special episode, we're focused on X-ray observation as we honor the 20th anniversary of the Chandra X-ray Observatory managed here in Huntsville at Marshall Space Flight Center. You can find a podcast of this show and the rest of the Public Radio Hour podcast archive at WLRH.org. Just look under the Programs tab. In the first part of the show, we talked about the past and present of X-ray observation. The future is still in its concept stage. Research astrophysicist and NASA study scientist Dr. Jessica Gaskin sat down with Marshall Space Flight Center historian Brian Odom and myself for a chat. And like Dr. Weisskopf, she was also inspired early on by a family member. Well, I would say my main inspiration was my dad. And he was an amateur astronomer, and he would basically teach me about the stars every chance he got. So um, having a a father who was interested in astronomy and a mother who was a geologist and had worked on the Apollo moon rocks um, at Johnson, she they were both very inspiring to really? me. As a kid, did you get to interact with that, the Apollo legacy? Did that something Was that something that you were just really familiar with? No. But <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I didn't find out that she had done that until after I had graduated, and I realized that she had worked on them, which oh, was wow. pretty exciting. Well, when you've, uh, you, know, you go along, you go through college, and you get interested in X-ray astronomy, how did that happen, and what really was the state of the field at the time? So I first got involved in X-ray astronomy in graduate school, and I won a fellowship, a NASA fellowship, to work with some of the most renowned X-ray astronomers in the world, and they happened to be nearly across the street at Marshall Space Flight Center. So the X-ray group at Marshall Space Flight Center is a pretty amazing group. They've been around uh, since before, before Chandra, and Chandra really brought them to Marshall. Something that's really important to understand is even though the Chandra X-ray Observatory started decades ago, the fact that it has laid the foundation for not just Marshall, but for the entire community to build upon is pretty uh, critical to how we operate. And it's pretty much the reason why I can be here today. And when you say community, what, what does that mean, community? Does that mean all over the world? The community in terms of local community, so industry, what I mean by that is local industry, university students, training students, allowing those students to then be a part of the science that comes out of Chandra, so training them on real-world observations, universe observations, and then also the community on an international scale. The way that science works with Chandra, you know, you make one discovery and it introduces a whole other series of questions, right? So when you came into came into X-ray astronomy, it was at a certain place at that time. Certain questions were being asked. How has it really changed over the time that you've been involved in it? Well, I've been in Marshall for around 15 years now. So it's been a while since that very first um, inundation into the X-ray group at Marshall. But... Chandra, since then, um, has made an amazing discoveries. And I would say that these, these discoveries are you know, fairly earth-shattering. <laughs> They've, it's, Chandra's basically proved the existence of dark matter, and it has characterized these highly energetic environments around black hole systems. Um, we know that black holes exist now. Um, we've also used Chandra to basically characterize the life of stars, a life and death of stars. And we've really started to understand what this high energy universe looks like. So Chandra has made some pretty amazing discoveries, but a lot of them were not predicted. A lot of them were not in the original goals that Chandra set out to be. And that's another value, you know, true value of these flagship missions is that you don't know what you're going to discover. So it's this discovery space that's really exciting. Um, and now that you have um, other 
observatories and other uh, phenomenon that have been discovered by these other observatories following up on that with an X-ray observatory, flagship class observatory is exciting as well. You know, that's an interesting question because a lot of what, uh, you know, Marshall does is really high energy astrophysics, right? So high energy phenomena, gamma ray bursts and that sort of thing. Is there a lot of interaction between those groups over there? You're talking about a similar range of energies. So we do collaborate a lot. Um, The science, we absolutely collaborate. We also have our gamma groups involved with LIGO, uh, which is a gravitational wave, ground-based gravitational wave observatory. The Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. They're also involved with HAWK, which is a ground-based gamma ray cosmic ray observatory. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, you know, ground-based observatories that are radio telescopes in order to really understand the discoveries that Chandra has made. You need to have multiple observatories, both in space and on the ground, that observes different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum and also observe high-energy particles and observe gravitational waves. So it's this entire suite that really allows you to understand what these discoveries are. Yeah, and I guess that goes back to this idea that Chandra is one of the great observatories, right, along with Hubble and Spitzer and Compton. You know, so they were looking at, you know, a different way. But now we hear something about multi-messenger. And so what is multi-messenger in, in, you know, uh, astronomy, and how is that different from this, I guess, or or what is that? So multi-messenger astronomy is when you've coordinated an observation of a particular object with multiple observatories. And these observatories all look at a different aspect of that object. So they're either looking at a different wavelength, or it's a LIGO observation where you've detected gravitational waves, and you really want to understand every aspect of it. So frequently, we don't just look at uh, something with Chandra. We look at it with Chandra and Hubble um, and Spitzer and also ground-based observatories, and that just provides that full context to really understand the physics behind what's happening. And so NASA's role should absolutely include, as we go forward and look at the next suite of great observatories or the next great observatories, should be cognizant of of that entire suite and what it should be and how the capabilities complement one another. Um, All those things are just incredibly important. And as we've started designing the next great X-ray observatory, we've kept all of those things in mind. Very cool. Well, I guess that brings us to the most important question then. What's next? Part of what's next really depends on what happens in the 2020 Astrophysics Decadal Survey. The Astrophysics Decadal Survey is when a group of people from the community all get together and they prioritize the next missions that they would like to see funded NASA fund for the next decade. So Hubble and Chandra and Spitzer, all the great observatories were part of this process. Um, And so is James Webb Space Telescope, which will launch in 2021. And then following uh, James Webb Space Telescope, WFIRST will launch, and it was part of the last decadal survey, so the 2010 decadal survey. For the 2020 decadal survey, there are four flagship mission concepts that NASA has funded a concept study for. One of those is called LYNX, which is the only high-energy observatory concept. Marshall, given its amazing background in X-ray astronomy, and something we would definitely like to see continue as we go forward, um, was assigned to be the primary study office for the concept. To take advantage of our partnership with the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory with Chandra, we've also partnered with them in the study office for LYNX. So we can leverage a lot of the history, a lot of the knowledge that was built by this amazing group of people who successfully launched and flew Chandra, which is now in its 20th year when its baseline mission was only five years, um, is a pretty great thing. So when the decadal comes back and hopefully prioritizes links as the number one decadal mission, we'll be ready to go. That's what we hope is And break down the links acronym for us here. Ha! So LYNX is not, not an, an acronym. acronym. Whoa, wait a minute. We refused. <laughs> we refused to, to, to give an acronym because NASA NASA loves acronyms. So I, don't, I don't understand this. So, so <laughs> what does it mean, LYNX? So LYNX is actually was a, 
Society for Lincea, which is the Society for Lynx. It's actually a society that's still going on. It's an Italian society. And its mascot was a lynx, which was thought to be this mythical creature with eyesight that could peer through things, through solid objects. So given that we're an X-ray observatory, the fact that we can see through gas and dust to whatever's behind it, um, it seemed like a really great... Great uh, name for Lynx for our mission. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I'm glad you cleared that up. So L-Y-N-X. L- capital L and lowercase Y-N-X. <laughs> and once Lynx becomes an actual mission, just like all missions that NASA flies, it will be renamed to something that um, the community wants in a more general sense. So Chandra was AXAF before it was selected. And then it be, was renamed after Chandrasekhar. So hopefully Lynx will, will do the same. Very cool. We're, Lynx is the follow-on to Chandra. How is Lynx going to be different than Chandra? So Chandra is an amazing observatory, as I've said, countless discoveries. Lynx will launch in the 2030s. And so it needs to be much more advanced and much more capable it will be a hundred times more sensitive than Chandra, and it will use instruments that Chandra currently doesn't have. These instruments are use all advanced technologies, um, state-of-the-art technologies that will not only allow us to image with the eyesight that is as sharp as the lynx um, that Chandra has, but it allow us to also map the energy signature in a way that no one's ever done before of all of particular objects that we look at. And that sensitivity will allow us to look further back and observe those very first black holes that are growing inside the very first galaxies. So these supermassive black holes and how they interact with the very first galaxies that James Webb will detect and how they shape those galaxies through cosmic time to what we see today is pretty exciting. Another uh, aspect, another science goal that we have with Lynx is also to really understand the drivers of galaxy formation and evolution. There's a lot we don't know about how galaxies come to be and, and why they look the way they do. So it's called the Galaxy Zoo. And, you know, we have elliptical galaxies and all different kinds of spiral galaxies and irregular galaxies and how, how, how we have what we see today and why we have that and what will happen after is just such an unknown. And then our third pillar, science pillar for Lynx, is related to understanding stellar formation and life and death and understanding how that stars interact with their environments and what that means for, you know, protoplanetary disk formation and the formation of our own, you know, planets like the Earth. But I would say the most exciting, again, is what we don't know and what questions we don't yet know to ask. And these flagship missions are just perfect for opening up this amazing discovery space. And so that's what we're really, really looking for. But at the same time, because we are interested in multi-messenger astronomy, we would like to have these capabilities be really consistent with what is gonna be um, on the ground, so these new 30-meter class telescopes on the ground, which are absolutely amazing, and square kilometer radio telescope arrays. The Event Horizon Telescope, for example, just imaged the first black hole, which is incredible, and Chandra was able to follow up on that observation and look at the context around the black hole with this giant jet um, that's flowing out of it. So we want to be able to do more things like that as other observatories also become more capable. But So you have a great passion for this field of X-ray astronomy. When you talk to people who have you know, non-science people, just no idea about what's going on here. Raise his hand. <laughs> you know, what is something you, that, you wish that, that you wish people knew about X-ray astronomy? You know, what's the first thing you really tell them, like, this is incredibly important? Uh, what, do, what do you tell people? What I tell people is that x-rays are pervasive throughout the universe. I think most people don't think that necessarily that x-rays come from almost every object that we see or don't see in the universe. Most of the the mass, most of the matter in the universe emits in the x-ray. And so, and 
to figure out how much matter we even have in the universe, you have to have x-rays. I mean, that's pretty much it. You get x-rays from comets, planets, pretty much from every object you can think of. And it's just not very intuitive. And the reason is you can't observe x-rays from the ground. And so, you know, you can't have a giant ground-based x-ray telescope. You have to go into space. And so if you're not familiar with space-based telescopes and, you know, the universe and how things work, then it's not necessarily very obvious. Whereas you can have a large ground-based visible light telescope and you can see things that are, that are also pretty amazing, but you're only seeing part of the story. You said a phrase that really sort of jumps out and it was one of, one of my big questions. And, and of course you were talking about the importance of x-rays and, and you know, what you want people to know about it. But you said uh, the universe and how things work. And that's one thing that I'm dying to ask you is uh, through your experiences and you've used the word uh, things that we see you know, out in space, uh, all, the, all that you have seen, does, does that change how you think about life on Earth, like seeing and having a better understanding for how the, the universe, I'm putting air quotes, radio folks, up in the air, how the universe works, does that change how you see and feel about things here on Earth? It's a difficult question to answer because it's a very personal question in a way. Um, I've always seen the universe as a very big place and with a lot of mystery in it. And I think as we start to understand some of these observations and the capabilities of these new observatories that are now coming online and understanding more of the story, it changes my perspective of how it all has to fit together before you're aware of all of these observations that this entire suite of telescopes is making, these observatories are making. You just have such a small picture in your head of what the universe is. And as you find out more, that picture absolutely grows. And you realize that, one, there's so much more we don't know. So that's exciting because you want to build more observatories and you want to be uh, more creative about what, you know, how you build them and what your instruments are and what your instruments do and h- what they're detecting. You also want to take more risks because you can't assume that you know what you're going to see. So you have to take more risks and try to, f- to figure out what you don't know, which is a really hard thing to do. But at the same time, you really have this realization that even something like x-rays coming from our star, our sun, um, has highly, heavily influenced how life formed on the planet, on our planet, what impact it has on our solar system, and that x-rays are part of the story too. But there are also many other things that are part of the story that made that possible. So, you know, we have other telescopes now. Exoplanets are a really big hot topic right now. And TESS launched not too long ago, which is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. TESS. TESS. And it has observed planets that are around the same size as the Earth. And they're closer in to their parent star, to their star. And so they're not just like the Earth. But the fact that they've observed planets that are the size of the Earth and they've observed planets that are slightly bigger, it's just A planet around every star is very exciting. And what role does the life of that star play in that planet formation? That that's very interesting. And just the possibilities of that planet, like what is what is there, you know? And and that's that's something else that I'm dying to ask you is, um, if you could go all the things that you've seen, if you could just zip to one of those places and get a close up eyeball view of it and come back safely in a reasonable amount of time. Where in the universe would you go? What would you want to see with your own own eyes, your own experience? Are you talking about planets? Are you it talking could be about anything, anything? Anything. Anything. She's thinking. Would I hard, die? Folks. No, no. You get to go and come back. Uh, time time okay. does not pass. We'll give you an hour. You're not going over the event horizon. No, you're no, like no, that. no. <laughs> yeah, I, I would go to a black hole probably and and try to observe the event horizon of the black hole, um, as you know, as it was interacting with. This is not coming off well. I think. No, no, no. I mean, anyway, th- we're we're, we're, I, I would, we're in dream world here. Like gonna, you, you're going to go. the event horizon, <laughs> and, and why would you want to go there? Because I think it's it's not very well understood. 
So to observe a black hole event horizon with x-rays, you need an x-ray interferometer, which is technologically extremely challenging. But it, it may be where the future lies in terms of what we're developing the distant, you know, in the distant future. Because if you can image the event horizon of a black hole and really understand um, how it's working and what it's doing, I mean, that would really solve a lot of really big questions for us about how and why um, black holes interact with their surroundings, which basically help c contribute to forming galaxies and, and other very large uh, structure objects that we see in the universe. So, Brian, I'm going to ask you, too. Where would you go? Oh, man. Um, that's... <laughs> I was not prepared. I'm usually, as a historian, I'm, I'm I used to you. thinking about time travel, not necessarily uh, traveling into the universe. But, you know, I, I think, you know, uh, one of the things I've really been interested in are these jets, you know, and again, you know, the idea that I have, you know, as a liberal arts guy, you know, it's things like this in the universe are so fascinating. But the idea that it's emitting these, you know, just this huge stream, it's in throughout the universe. You know, to see something like that, you know, if you could see something like that, I guess, if, you, if your eyes were equipped to be able to see this, you know, which I guess what, uh, which is what Chandra allows us to do, right? It gives us the ability to see. It gives us the ability to go and look for these things and see these things in ways that, you know, if we did travel to the universe, we wouldn't be able to, right? So these are powerful technologies that, uh, you know, are incredibly important and pushing them to the, you know, pushing the next big thing, you know, pushing to links and finding out. What, what we will be able to see with that that we don't even we, we, we can't even imagine right now and what we might be able to see and how that will change our view of the universe. As an aside, I should say that I think the Artemis program is also pretty amazing and that's our return to the moon and Marshall has an instrumental role in that as well. Um, so that's that's also very exciting and there has been you know some discussion about uh, what, you know, type of a, what kind of astronomy we can even do from the moon that we couldn't do from Earth. So, anyway, I thought I'd mention it. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> and, and that is true. I mean, you think about the Artemis program and it, and it, going back to the moon and then going on to Mars, you know, it gets people, it gets the public's attention again in a way that the images from Hubble and Chandra get people's attention. Uh, you know, so these things kind of feed off each other and there's a synergy out there that people are thinking again about doing something bigger than themselves. So, you know, do you see that there is that science does have a, a huge benefit from a program like this to go back to the moon? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know this is more about astronomy, but, you know, on all levels, planetary science through astronomy, there is an amazing amount of discovery space there and opportunity. That was research astrophysicist Dr. Jessica Gaskin and Marshall Space Flight Center historian Brian Odom talking with us on the Public Radio Hour as we honor the 20th anniversary of the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Thanks also to Dr. Martin Weisskopf for spending time with us. And as we mentioned earlier, an amazing panel discussion is being hosted next Thursday, September 5th at 6.30 at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center's Intuitive Planetarium. The panel features Dr. Weisskopf, Eileen Collins, the first female space shuttle commander, and Harvey Tannenbaum, director of the Chandra Science Center. I'm Brett Tannehill. We hope you enjoyed the show. And don't forget you can find a podcast at wlrh.org. Thanks for listening.